and welcome to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Zoe Forsey, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to track down our Russell Myers because, as we mentioned last week, he's in Canada with Prince Charles and Camilla. We had hoped to fit him in for a recording, however, the jam-packed schedule, which has absolutely no gaps in, just hasn't allowed it, unfortunately. So what we've got for you instead is a special episode with royal writer and photographer Ian Lloyd, who joined me to discuss his new book, which takes a look at the Queen's 70-year reign to celebrate her Platinum Jubilee. And Russell and I will be back as normal next week with a bumper episode talking about the Jubilee Horse Show, the return of garden parties, and of course, all the news from Canada. And while I've got you, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who has sent in their favourite memories of the Queen for our Jubilee coverage. Absolutely love listening to them all so far. And it's not too late if you want to be involved. Now, what we're looking for is either your favourite memories of the Queen, of you know, or favourite moments of her reign, or if you've had the honour of meeting her, what it was like and, you know, talking us through that occasion. Now, you can either send us a voice note or a written message, whichever you prefer, and you can do that via social media, so that's at PodSave on Twitter or on Instagram, or you can email us at podsavethequeen at trinitymirror.com. Enjoy. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host this week, Zoe Forsey, and we've got another author special for you this week, which is very exciting. So I am joined by Ian Lloyd, who is making his debut on Pod Save the Queen. Hi, Ian. How are you? Hello, Zoe. I'm fine. Thank you very, very much for asking me on. No, thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to um, chat with you because, you well, the main reason you're here is that you've got a fantastic new book out, uh, which is uh, The Queen, which is to celebrate the Queen's 70 years on the throne. But you've also had an incredible yeah. career, um, which I'm really excited to hear about. So we'll go on to the book first. But just to kind of introduce you to our readers a bit first, I'd love to chat through mm. some of what you've what you've done over the years. So um, from what mm. I've read, I've been having a little, a little internet stalk of you and some of you book so you've worked Ooh. as a photographer and writer kind of specializing in the royal family for, for two decades haven't you yeah i started uh, by photographing the uh, the older royals the queen queen mum margaret in the uh, 80s and 90s um because diana was just it was just uh, a circus everybody was doing it and it was very very stressful and also i couldn't afford the tours particularly but um so I started with the older royals. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with photographing and being around the Queen. And I tell you what, she's always incredibly impressive. I mean, even Princess Margaret said that she was, um, something went through her mind when the Queen walked into her room. It was just, she's pretty awesome. If I had to think of one word with the Queen, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, when she walks into her room, you know it's the Queen, partly because everybody's looking at her, but partly because she has that bearing, that dignity, you know. And she's quite uh, short. I mean, you know, just five foot four, something like that. But everybody stared at her and she just got innate dignity. And um, it is a number of times, you know, it sent a shiver down my spine seeing her there because it's, uh, it's, there's a, a bit of adrenaline rush, I think, when the Queen's around. I can imagine. So what was the, can you remember the first time you, you know, kind of saw her to, to photograph her then? What was that? That must be, you know, obviously we see, so many photos of her but I've never been lucky enough to be in the same room with her what was it doing like doing at that first occasion well the first time I remember seeing her I was a child really it was um, the jubilee year of 1977 and I, I was up at um, Crathy with my family uh, Crathy's a church near Balmoral and the queen was just going to church and uh, the thing I remember is it was just very very impressive in those days 
troops, kilts wearing troops would lead the Queen into church. She was in the Rolls Royce behind. And um, it was something quite, you know, magical in the middle of, almost in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of the Highlands. You get this, uh, this procession of Rolls Royces going to church, you know. And there was just something about that that, uh, you know, caught my imagination. And I think, I think that's what's missing these days is because when the Queen's around in those days, she was always in a, you know, one of these phantom poor Rolls Royce cars. Yep. <laughs> there was something very noticeable about it, you know what I mean? Whereas now they turn up in, you know, uh, pretty good cars, right? Range Rovers and the like. But um, they've not got that kind of feel of royalty that uh, the, the older generation had. And so how did it compare then, uh, photographing the Queen and the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret? Compared to what? To, to, to these days or to the younger generation? Oh, well, both actually. But, you know, so as in that trio, were there any big differences that you used to notice between the three of them? Between the three of them? Well, the Queen Mother was the easiest to photograph. I mean, she absolutely loved it. I did a book on her in the 80s and um, I went to see her press secretary. He okayed the project and I, I said, you know, what happens if I see the Queen Mum out and about, you know, sort of going to the races or whatever and he said, oh, just don't worry, she loves it. And she did love it. She never, ever was phased by it. And she created pictures. I mean, you know, sometimes um, you'd see a photograph, uh, you know, so she'd go around um, an exhibition and there was a photograph of her during the war at this exhibition. And she would say, do you want me to stand next to it? And you'd say, well, yes, please, you know. And um, if she was given a cup of tea, like a, a very old vintage little cup and saucer or something she would pretend to drink out of it she knows <laughs> that's the image you know and the best I remember was the pubs you know because she used to uh, every year go around the east end and um, she would often drop in unannounced at a pub and um, <laughs> you know I mean they knew she was in the area but they didn't know she was due to come in and she would go in and they would say um, she just set up photographs she would say they would say would you like a glass of champagne or something and she always said, no, I'll have whatever the local bitter is, you know. I mean, she never drank bitter in her life, but I mean, she, <laughs> she would pretend. And then they said, and then she said, you know, there's one thing I've always wanted to do, and that is to pull a pint myself. And she'd go behind the bar with all the gloves on and a handbag and all that, and pull a pint of beer, hold it up as if she was judging it, and then take a little swig, you know. And it was all for the cameras and all for public relations. I mean, she, she was good at it, good at it. And that's the difference between her and the Queen. The thing with the Queen is she's not an actress. She can't act to save her life. She just doesn't feel comfortable performing. And I think she also thought her mother was a bit of a fraud because the Queen Mother, like I say, she wouldn't naturally do certain things, but she would do it for the cameras. The Queen just cannot do that. So um, there was a case when the Queen went to Ireland and she was faced with a pint of Guinness in, in a bar and, and she just kind of looked at it and it was kind of an awful silence because she didn't really do anything <laughs> she just walked away yeah but she that, would never have done that you know yeah it's that difference but, isn't it? and I do think it's yeah. as you said it's that skill that kind of comes with being in the spotlight all the time and obviously the queen is different because she yeah. has such a different role but it's as you said it's knowing what makes the photo and I think this is we see this a lot with the younger royals now isn't it there's the certain thing that makes the funny picture it's them holding something do you know Prince Harry always used to be brilliant at this didn't he like he'd always kind of pull the face or do the do the slightly different thing that makes that oh. makes that you know stand out picture that will be on the front cover of newspapers that will be everywhere on social media well, the Queen Mum once said to me, um, 
behind that camera is two million people. And what she meant is that if I get a good picture and it was in the paper, then the readership, which in those days was phenomenal for the, for the sun and the mirror and so on, um, um, you would get a vast readership would see and say, oh, isn't it Queen Mother nice because she's doing such a thing, you know. And it, 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 it kept them going. It kept them in the limelight. She knew that. She was very, very canny. Uh, the younger royals, the problem is they don't have the same feeling for it. So um, Harry is a case in point because he was like that, as you say. I mean, he was terrific. Um, I mean, and set up photographs. Do you remember that when he was racing with Usain Bolt? In, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> I think it was in Jamaica when they, they did a kind of 100 metres. Harry did the, the old joke of sort of saying, oh, what's that behind you? And when Usain Bolt's Yeah, I've managed Harry, to get a little head start. <laughs> Um, but the last time I saw Harry, um, he was terrible with the press. I mean, he just didn't want to know. It was just after George, um, sorry, Archie had been born. And of course, you know, the crowds were all over him and euphoric, but the press, he turned his back, he wouldn't pose. He was just very, very difficult. He's completely gone off the press because it goes back to the Diana years and he felt that she was hounded. And they kind of, they all, they both were, William and Harry, because they grew up at that time. And in the 80s, it was a terrible time for royalty because the media was very um, insistent. I mean, it was the rise of the paparazzi and they were desperate for photographs of Diana and the boys. And even terrible photographs, you know, out of focus pictures of Harry talking to a, you know, a guard at Windsor made the front pages. So they were, they were hounded all the time. And I think he, he remembers that, and of course, the death of Diana, he blames very much on the press, although, you know, there are obviously other factors, I mean, the drunken chauffeur and the very fact that had his mother worn a seatbelt, she would be here today, so he doesn't think that, he thinks it's all due to the, the press, you know, so um, their, their feeling is coloured by that, so um, there is a difference between the generations. There really is, so what was that last occasion that you saw uh, Prince Harry at, can you remember? Uh, well, it was at a community centre in, in Oxford, and um, I say it was just a couple of days after Archie was born, and um, people were giving him little toys, you know, kind of um, yeah. toy teddy bears and all of that. And, uh, children at local schools had drawn babies and drawn cards saying, we love you, Harry, and all that. And the sad thing, the really sad thing, he's such a natural with the, the crowd. He has that Diana wow factor. And before he married, in the last few years of a single man, he, he was the second most popular person in the royal family. The Queen is the first because she's pretty unassailable. You can't get Yeah, no one's ever taken that, that top spot off her, is she? But, but the great thing with Harry was that he, no matter the terrible stories that appeared, you remember the, was the, um, when he went to Las Vegas and got drunk at a party? Oh, yes. Um, there was pictures of him completely naked that were um, in the newspapers and and every time you think you would think oh my god this is going to be a sensation it actually didn't affect his popularity because the man in the street a woman in the street would look and realize that you know he's just a young lad I mean I think that was on leave he was either about to go to Afghanistan or he'd just come back and people would think you know give the ladder you know uh, a holiday for goodness sake so no matter what happened to harry the bad stories about drug taking and it was the time he um, said a racist comment as he filmed somebody 
it could have undermined the royal family, it could have undermined his image, but it never did. It actually added to it because he seemed very human, really. And he completely different to the Queen and that generation, but he, he was just, um, you know, a wonderful man. And he, when he was around, there was energy um, in the room. And um, it's just such a shame that it's kind of gone downhill for him personally because it's, um, you know, I, I can't see it returning to those good old days for him anyway. And how do you think, how does uh, his obviously older brother, Prince William, because for me, I see a lot more of the Queen and Charles in William's approach to kind of photographers and, you know, how he sits and how he positions. He always seems a lot more formal. And while he perhaps a few years ago used to do a lot more of the jokey stuff, like there was an occasion where I think it was Kate, William and Harry all raced, you know, were another one of these activities. But he never quite, you know, even when they were on the Royal Tour and he was playing football, he still was kind of doing it in a formal shirt and it didn't quite have the same... Yeah, I kind of get the, from like the stories you've given now, it feels that Harry's a bit more queen mother and William's a bit more queen. Do you think that's fair? He's certainly um, um, impressed by the queen very much. Um, I think that, unfortunately, the queen's lived to a great age so that he has been able to see her um, undertake the duties and be with her at various events. And so is Kate. I mean, I first saw Kate with the Queen in when they went to Leicester in just about the time they got married. I think it was about 2011 or 12. Oh, and yes, that was the first was engagement, much, wasn't it? Yeah, their first joint yeah. engagement. But they did various things together over the years. And I think that, um, I think partly because the Queen was very aware of the Diana uh, problem, in that Diana later said that she'd been a lamb to the slaughter and she knew nothing about royal life. Well, that's not quite true. I know people, ladies in waiting, that did teach uh, Diana the, the ropes. But anyway, um, she, um, I think the Queen was very aware that with this new royal, and with Meghan as well, that, that she mustn't be seen to be um, adrift. She mustn't be seen to be lost in any situation. So she passed on her uh, tricks of the trade, I think. Um, and they both, William and Kate, had seen the Queen up, up close on so many formal occasions. And they, 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 they know that... Um, yeah, the, 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 the public relations things, the, the, the jokes and the whatever, you know, the fun side of royalty is what makes the photographs. But ultimately, it's the duty that succeeds. Um, and we see that with the Princess Royal, because I remember the Princess Royal as a young woman. And her public image was terrible. I mean, she was Princess Sourpuss in the 70s. She uh, famously told photographers well they used to say she said nap off but I know exactly what she said <laughs> but, was that uh, a polite way was... of putting it <laughs> oh yeah I mean when she, I know yeah I know photographers from that time but um you know they would I mean to be fair <laughs> what they would always do is go to these race um equestrian events and what you do is you position yourself against the worst fence the one with a water jump and the hope is of course that princess animals are or whoever it is falls off the horse in the water and she knew that and they knew that and so on but um, occasionally she would just lean down and give a, a, a four four letter riposte to her, <laughs> her. Um, she she but she she um her, her image improved and the reason how it improved was that uh, in the 80s uh, and 90s she very slowly reformed her image by sheer hard work i mean she went to um africa and she um, 
she didn't go as a princess with a nice hat on and a handbag. She went, you know, dressed in jeans and a uh, sort of safari hat and so on. And, and um, just stayed in tents and just stayed in uh, Land Rovers and, and just saw the plight of the children of Africa herself and obviously uh, used that information to help in a role in the Save the Children Fund. And then suddenly after about a few years, people realised, my God, she's been doing this, you know, five, six years, going to Africa really unnoticed because everybody was photographing Diana again and so on. Um, and each newspaper just had one photographer and that photographer followed the most newsworthy, so quite often it was Diana. So Princess Anne got overshadowed, but what she did was just sheer hard work and you see eventually that, um, you know, she's been doing a heck of a lot of good. And the same with the Queen with duty. I mean, the Queen right through all these awful years, like the Anna Cerebris, the death of Diana, she was still going to car factories and, you know, visiting uh, states abroad, which was not, not really noticed at all in those days, but she got on with it. And now we're at the stage with the Queen, we look back and think, my God, 70 years of meeting prime ministers and, um, you know, going to abroad and meeting ambassadors and all, all the those little things. And, and that's what she's conveyed to William and Kate, I think, that it's not just the fun times that get you in the paper and you keep the monarchy popular. It's the sheer graft, the sheer hard work. And I do, a lot of people say the royal family don't work, but they do. Um, and I've seen it, and particularly Prince Philip, I remember, worked incredibly hard um, because they do their own, um, you know, quite, he used to write his own speeches. And when he got back to the Buckingham Palace late at night, show, uh, detectives would tell me the light would go on in his study. And even after a royal film premiere or something, he would be back at his desk um, checking paperwork and so on. And in fact, I did see Philip once in London, just driving past, you know, his, he had a London taxi cab that he kept for himself. Um, he bought it and travelled around London in it. And he, he was That's doing work. That's a clever idea, isn't it? A good, a good way to kind of go, I guess, a bit unnoticed. Well, yeah, but also it was, um, I think it was electric, eventually an electric uh, one. So it was, it was eco-friendly as well. But um, yes, he used that um, uh, to, um, to get to engagements around London. So he, he was, um, but uh, he, he worked hard as well. So he, Philip and um, the younger generation have had that example. And the Prince of Wales, I mean, you mustn't forget him. I mean, he's, he's what he's taught, uh, I think, William, is this thing of causes, because the Queen uh, and her mother inherited charities um, from the previous generation. Um, so uh, when, for instance, the Queen Mother came on the scene in the 1920s, one of Queen Victoria's daughters had just died, and some of her charities went to the Queen Mother as Duchess of York. And so they pass on. But I think Charles thought out of the box rather than just visiting, um, you know, flower shows and um, charities for distressed, distressed gentle folk or whatever they were in those days. He thought out of the box and did the Prince's Trust, you know, helping young people and so on. And I think Diana, of course, did the same with landmines and the homeless and AIDS. And I think... Uh, William's taken that on board so um, I think he will work hard like the Queen's done but in focusing in certain directions if you see what I mean. Definitely and one thing that I get told constantly by people who are lucky enough to you know kind of work closely with the Queen including our Russell, um, our Russell Myers who's the royal editor uh, at the Mirror is that Camilla is one of their favourite to work with that she's always brilliant she always knows what's needed she's always really nice and very kind is that something that you've you've experienced absolutely i mean camilla is uh is terrific and i, I would say 
um, in terms of um, working with the media, she's probably the best. Um, I, uh, and considering what she's been through, which um, you know in the early days was a very negative press, you'd think she'd be very very apprehensive. But I remember, for instance, um, going to an engagement in Dorset. Um, Prince Charles has got this village called Poundbury, which you probably know about, which he designed himself. And it's um, it's kind of like an 18th century town that's been created in the 21st century. And um, the Queen and Prince Philip went to see it a few years ago and to unveil a statue of the Queen Mother in this Queen Mother's Square that they've got there. And after it had all finished, you know, the Queen and... Philip got in the car and disappeared. So there was just Charles and Camilla, and I think they were going off to lunch or something. But Camilla just strode across to the press pen and um, quite literally just leaned against the barrier and said, you know, how's it going? How are you? But what came across was that she wasn't doing it because she thought that was a good thing to do. Um, she was doing it quite naturally. Um, and she talked to the press and she recognises them and she calls them, you know, hello, Fred or... Arthur or whoever she's talking to, she knows the names of the press. And it does go back to the Queen Mother because the Queen Mother would do exactly the same. I remember it raining, the Queen Mother coming across and saying, oh, how's it going, this terrible weather? And, um, you know, the, the poor cameras, they don't like the rain, do they, and all of this. Um, and what you got was the fact, not that she knew as much, knows much about cameras, but the fact is that she was willing to just make that gesture and say, you know, you're there, I recognise you, and I know what you do, and it's hard work, and I appreciate it. Um, so she had that. As I say, some of them, Princess Anne, for instance, would just walk past and hope you got wet through. But, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of them, <laughs> a lot of them are like that. I know we said Harry um, would these days blank you, um, but a lot of them um, have that, uh, I don't know, sensitivity, and Camilla has that. And she is very, very popular, and not just with the press, but with all the people that she, um, you know, sees and works with. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate where she's come from because there, is, there is a pocket of people um, that just can't stand her. I mean, my, one of my favourite hobbies is to be if I'm in a situation where there's, there's um, people slight, usually slightly older than me, perhaps people in the I don't know late sixties, seventies, and they're all. I had this in the hospital. I had a hospital appointment. I had to wait for an hour. And it was all older people. So I just said, what does everybody think of Camilla? And straight away, oh, my God, don't you mention that woman. Um, there is a pocket of people that think blame Camilla for what happened with Diana and so on. And they'll never get over that. Um, but the younger people, with you know, their attitude usually is, oh, well, so what? And there is a generation growing up now that doesn't know Diana, doesn't know the Diana days where... She was on the front of the paper every day and we sort of lived with her. She was our sister sort of thing. She was, you know, part of the family and had a tr tremendous impact, you know. I mean, she'll always be remembered. I think she'll be like anybody that dies young, like James Dean, Marilyn Monroe and so on, will always be there. There'll be documentaries and films for years to come. But um, um, it's a shame it's overshadowed Camilla. And Camilla does a great job with Charles because uh, Diana, I remember, um, Charles would read a speech and Diana would slightly hoist her, her skirt up and cross her legs and of course all the cameras were focusing on her. I mean, do you remember that Taj Mahal image in India where um, yes, of course. there was a tour of India? Well, well, Charles was making a very important speech on the environment. Nobody ever would know that or, or even remember it. But of course the image was Diana sitting in front of this temple for love, you know, the Taj Mahal. And she um, 
she could kind of sabotage him if she chose. Uh, Camilla's the opposite. She she backs him up, and I've seen her. He'll make a speech, and she'll say, oh, "Well done, darling." You know, um, and also they they have uh, well, they're together. They're, they're a team, and sometimes there's funny moments. Uh, I always remember the um, seeing it on the television. I wasn't there, but they were somewhere like um, uh, in Canada, and there was this uh, um, this native sort of um, singing, something like throat singing or something, where people um oh gosh i do remember this when they were just kind of was this when this, they were giggling they a bit? This funny <laughs> noise and of course it's, it's quite a serious thing because it's, it's culture and it's the equivalent of our sort of folks singing in scotland or something but it uh, it was very funny to watch and you could just see camilla set up laughing and charles did they were just trying desperately to control themselves because these poor people were um, you know demonstrating this art uh, ancient skill that that, that um you know, has come down through the generations and they're just wetting themselves laughing. (laughs) (laughs) They do always seem, I love seeing them together at engagements because I think they just look like they have so much fun, as you were saying, and they're all, you know, there's always fun little Mm. moments and as you know, then, they were, they were in uh, Ireland earlier this year and, you know, there's always, you know, they're mm. there with the Guinness and they're just laughing and joking. And yeah, oh, I yeah. think you've described it so well that they're just a team and they just look like they're a nice, they just like they're a couple kind of actually on holiday and enjoying it, which I think is lovely. And which is, again, yeah. something that the Cambridges do really well at certain events, obviously not at the more formal ones. But I think, yeah, Charles and Camilla, are, it's really, I really like seeing them together. I think they're great. Yeah, I mean, I think teamwork's the, the, the right thing. I mean, with, with, Diana and Charles, particularly in the 90s and after the separation, um, it, there were two teams, you know, there was pro-Charles, pro-Diana, uh, pro rather, um, and the press were and everything, and she really knew how to play that game, and, and um, she knocked him off the pages every day. I mean, the most um, striking one was the, the night that they broadcast a, a documentary on Charles in, I think, 1994, and... Um, Diana was at the Serpentine Gallery in Hyde Park. Uh, the, re- this, the revenge um, dress, the revenge black dress, <laughs> as everyone I'm dubbed glad it. I you said that because I couldn't remember it. Yeah. But yeah, that, that dress. And of course, the next day, is, um, that was on the front of the papers and everybody, the, the message, which she knew was very much, look what you're missing. This is me and you're with, you know, Camilla and so on. So she was... Um, uh, they were the terrible times because they, uh, and it started very early in the relationship. I remember right at the very beginning with, with just after they married, is, um, you would go to a, a, something like, um, well, the first big visit was Wales, I remember that, and it bucketed down with rain and um, uh, Diana didn't hide in the car or have an umbrella. She got absolutely soaked through, but she still went through to the crowds and talked to them. And the thing was, he went to one side, she went to other. And when poor child went to his side, everybody go, oh, no. <laughs> um, that was because they, they, all want, they all wanted Diana, in, didn't they? They didn't, want, they didn't want to talk to Charles. They wanted to meet Diana. Well, that's it. For a short time, he liked it because he, he, you know, this is my wife, you know, this is great. But it, it, he's very shy, sensitive, not shy, but he's a very sensitive guy. And I think it did wear his confidence down. And uh, that, that, that was the start of the problem, is that um, she knew how to play the crowd and she knew how to glad hand them and so on. But, uh, and poor Charles, whenever he went, you know, he just got sort of uh, sighs and boos and, you know, sort of uh, not nastily, but just because they all really wanted Diana. Um, it's a bit like I've just been reading a book about John Kennedy and, and Jackie, and it was the same there that, um, you know, 
they'll say, oh, and Jackie's coming with him, and great cheers, you know, because she was was that kind of uh, allure, or that kind of fashion plate, and, and, and attractive person, but just uh, um, it was, you know, that, a similar situation, I think. And I think you've seen it more recently with Kate and with Megan, but I don't know if there seems to be more of a, as you said, that, you know, if they do a, a walkabout, they tend to, you know, they go together, don't they? So they both see it. They tend to go like down this, or most of them down the same side of meeting the crowds. And there's, it feels like there's more of a conscious effort to make that not an issue again, would you say? I think so, yes. I mean, I would think Kate and William is quite similar to the Queen and, and Philip um, in that, um, well, actually, in, uh, I would say actually Philip and the Queen were more glamorous. Um, uh, Prince Philip said that there was a quote I found recently saying the adulation, you couldn't believe it because in the 50s they were, they were the pin-up couple because they were absolutely gorgeous, both of them. Whereas with Charles and Diana, she was gorgeous, he wasn't particularly and, and so on. The men in the House of Windsor tend to go off quite, <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> But um, the uh, the uh, that generation, Philip was um, just as attractive. But I think um, so when he was present, people wanted to see Philip as much as the Queen. I think to a certain extent they do with William. I think, I think you wouldn't be disappointed if you got William rather than Kate. But uh, the thing is that Kate's not particularly um, desperate to undermine him. She wants to uh, build him up because he's um, not just her husband, but he's the next king and monarchy is the job they do so it's not in her interest she would feel to to sort of uh, try to get one over on him try to be more popular um you know so i, I think it's uh, noticeable with them and it was with harry and megan or for the short time that we had them now obviously your new book is out uh, later this year and obviously is hooked on the uh, jubilee that's coming up in june and the queen's 70 years on the throne but why did you decide that you personally wanted to, to do something on this well the book's actually coming out on her 96th birthday on the 21st of april and i wanted very much to do um something on the queen because um she is, to me, an eternally fascinating person. She is the most public, most famous woman in the world, and yet equally the most private. We don't know her real feelings, say, about Diana or Mrs Thatcher or all those things we'd love to sit down and talk to the Queen about, partly because she has never given an interview. I mean, she knows her value. She knows that once an interview is done, uh, you can't rewind it. I mean, they had this problem back in the 60s when they did this documentary called Royal Family. And um, it rather shocked them, the Royal Family, because it did so incredibly well. It remains the third highest television audience after the 1966 World Cup and the funeral of Diana. So um, something like half the country watched it in a time when, you know, there was only BBC and ITV. Um, so she um, she knows that once you do something like that it can't be undone so she's been very careful to preserve that privacy and of course she's the last of that generation with the death of prince philip and the queen mother and margaret and so on uh these days we we quite often know too much about the royal family certainly we did with charles and diana we knew their every feeling about things and um they were kind of overexposed again we're going back to william and kate i mean they've 
try to control it. I mean, for a start, they don't particularly go out very much. They don't go to the London social scene. They're not at every premiere and every party. They, they tend to enjoy the family life, So, which is what the Queen and Philip did. I mean, the Queen um, uh, obviously went to premieres and went to events and dinners and so on, but didn't really socialise in London. Very occasionally she would go to the cinema uh, and very occasionally go to musicals. She went to um, um, a few Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals like Starlight Express and so on. Um, but she didn't, you know, she wasn't seen out and about. And William and Kate did that. So um, I think that's fascinating about the Queen is that she's she's kind of unknown, really, and uh, quite a private person. And she's fascinating to me for all kinds of reasons. I mean, her sense of humour, which we hear lots about, um, she can, she used to imitate Ian Paisley and she, um, she can imitate um, Angela Kelly, who's a, PA. I mean, Angela, Angela's a Liverpudlian and uh, used to know her fairly well, and she had a, a strong Liverpudlian accent. The Queen would imitate that. And actually, I, somebody told me she would imitate Princess Margaret, as the Queen imitated Margaret. <laughs> she thought Margaret, her sister, was a little bit plummier than she was herself, because the Queen's gone slightly more estuary over the years. She's kind of gone a little bit more... Uh, um, I've got to be careful what I say, but she's <laughs> she's gone more natural in her voice. She's less piercing than yes. she used to be. So um, Princess Margaret never never changed. She was quite quite posh. So uh, the Queen would imitate her, but um, got a sense of humour. And I love, for instance, her um, her frugality. Somebody told me that she um, um, she got in her bedroom one of those um, well a bedside light, and um, she'd heard about these new LED bulbs that you get and so she left a note because what the queen does is doesn't you know tell people she leaves a little note in each room with a notepad you know just she and she scribbled get me one of these new lights but only after this one's blown you know so that's typical of the queen's frugalities that she would um uh, not want to waste the bulb that's in there but you know, next time it goes next time it goes move on one. to that yeah it's really interesting isn't yeah. it because i think people you know assume because obviously they have so you know everything around them is complete you know completely lavish and luxury isn't it but the kind of the, the little day-to-day things the decisions that are made there's still that that thought about cash which I think is is really interesting and um, now there's the book is absolutely filled with little you know really interesting facts pieces of history and lots of little stories as well obviously as someone that's been so involved with the royal world for a long time you probably know an awful lot of this before but what were the kind of Mm. were there any things during your research that any new facts and little you know new stories that you hadn't heard before that really stuck out as your kind of favorites from it oh loads but i can't think of any at the moment (laughs) (laughs) um let me think. Um, can we come back to that? Yeah, that's um, fine. I was going to say, I'll give, I'll give you some of mine, perhaps, then. Should we do it that way? And then oh, it yes. might spring your yeah, memory. Please. So I loved <laughs> um, the the celebrity meetings uh, chapter, oh. which is great, on Madonna and John Cleese and the kind of meetings they had there, which I thought were quite quite entertaining, weren't they? Well, I remember the Madonna one. It's so funny because Madonna, it was... Um, um, the Queen used to go to the film premieres each every two years. She shared it first with the Queen Mum and then with Charles. So on alternate years, they would go to the Royal Film Premiere, um, which they usually dreaded because they always had to make it a very safe film. It couldn't be anything that was unseemly. So uh, they saw an awful lot of James Bond, I think, like, over the years. And this was the, um, I can't remember which one it was. It was at the Royal Albert Hall and it was um, 
Madonna sang the theme song, you see, and so she was in the lineup. And the Queen is very underwhelmed by meeting celebrities because I think when you're the ultimate A-list in the world, seeing other A-listers is pretty boring, you know. So. And I think it's a generational film that if she saw the likes of Tommy Cooper or people from the 50s, her generation, she would, you know, talk to them and say, oh, I remember when we did this and so on. But um, the modern cult of celebrity leaves her completely, <laughs> completely unfazed. <laughs> and so she, she, met, she met Madonna, and Madonna had really scrubbed up well. She had this gorgeous gown, and her hair was pinned up like Dusty Springfield in the 60s. It was all nicely bouffant. She must have spent ages thinking, what do I do? And it was very uh, apparent the Queen didn't have a clue who this woman was. <laughs> and so they said, oh, this is Mrs. Madonna, and she's, um, uh, you know, sang a song and um, you know the you, madonna must be used to people saying, oh madonna oh i can't believe you're here you know the queen said just said oh you sang the song did you and just walked away <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh you know she's asked um it's a standing joke i think she's asked, asked ed sheeran three times what do you do and um uh, what was the one with Eric Clapton? She said, um, how long have you been playing the guitar? And she said, about 45 <laughs> years, Mom. Uh, so, I mean, bless her, she just doesn't know who these, these who people, people are. are. The, the one, one I was told, told by this guy who used to sit with them in the Royal Box at the Royal Variety performance, and it was, it was going off the Royal Variety. It was seen as getting a bit stale. So they said, what we need is a big name. So they got Diana Ross over from America and they gave her the whole of the second act and that was never known because a Royal Variety you get a maximum of say 15 minutes but Diana Ross they gave the whole of the second act and flew her over with this entourage and you know she was a big name at the time and uh, well still is but um, uh, the Queen sort of listened to it all and then afterwards as they were going down to what they call the meet and greet later on when they see the celebrities and the guy that was sitting with us said uh, did you enjoy the show, Mom? And she said, "Oh, yes, I did." She said, "And you know, I thought that girl singer did rather well." <laughs> <laughs> so that was Diana Ross put in a in a in a box because she didn't again have a clue really who Diana Ross was. And there was a somebody told me that it's quite funny because Prince Philip was rather deaf, so um, uh, he, the Queen apparently used to liaise because she would see the Queen sat nearer the stage, so she could see on this thing underneath. Who was coming on next? Because they have a big list in this in the wings, you know. And, oh, um, that's clever. <laughs> he, 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 she would tell interpret, and he would say, "Who's next?" And one was the singer Seal, um, um, and um, he came on. The Queen Philip said, "Who's this?" And she said, "It's Seal," and because he's a bit deaf, he said, "What?" And he said, "Seal." He said, "Peel." No, he said, "No, Seal." <laughs> what a bloody silly name. <laughs> I can imagine that completely <laughs> and that yeah so it's that and what do you do question that I think quite a lot of big names have got so are you kind of like looking looking at the thing here so it was John John Cleese she asked what he did there was also uh Kate Bush mm. and Mick Hucknall um although what I do like about that when uh Mick Hucknall recall uh, when Hucknall replied and said that they were singer-songwriters, and um, then Philip oh, also yeah. asked, and he didn't have a clue that even though Hucknall had presented the Duke of Edinburgh Awards for the last couple of years, <laughs> <laughs> which is which was a funny one. And also, um, when the Queen met Brian May, obviously the guitarist of Queen, and, uh, uh, you know, did the same of, you know, 
who who are you? And she remind he reminded her that he actually played the national anthem on the roof of Buckingham Palace for the Golden Jubilee. To which she apparently went, Oh, that was you, was it? So she does, you know, she does know all these things. And obviously we can't, you know, we're not not criticizing because she meets an awful lot of people. And as you said, it's not perhaps not perhaps not a Queen fan, maybe. It does it does put them in the in you know, in the in their um what's the word um, she puts them in their place in a sense you know but actually funny enough I was there at that concert and uh, as a photographer and um, we the the national anthem played by Brian May with his guitar was of course boomed right across the palace garden and um, as a photographer I had a massive lens on and I was looking at the palace rooftops and going along slowly trying to find a chimney <laughs> pot and a gap and another chimney pot and finally found him and just as I did it he got down and so I missed that but um, yeah, his little tiny figure on the t- on the top of the palace roof. So um, yeah, I think she's used to all these kind of funny things happening, and um, and and not really a clue who they are. If if he was if if it was a famous jockey, somebody from the world of horses, she would she would know that instinctively. But um, uh, sadly, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say same Hollywood as- A-listers. Yeah, no, it's the same so, as everyone else. She's got her, you know, got her own interests. She just for work has to do a lot of meet a lot of different people, doesn't she? Actually, they did. Um, I did find out in the early years they did um, meet a lot of Hollywood celebrities. One that they liked was Danny Kay, and um, Danny Kay was um, a sort of singer and actor in the forties, fifties, and he came over to uh, the West End to London <clears throat> after the war, and he was a massive draw. And Princess Margaret went regularly, and the Queen went to um, see him, or as Princess Elizabeth then. And he came back to her house and he, um, she had a house at Windsor called Windlesham Manor. And um, he was, you know, they said gambling around on the lawns. He was entertaining and playing around. And so she was friends with Danny Kay. And I think she had lunch, the other one? she had dinner with Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. So they did mix in the early days. And actually Prince Philip used celebrity for his charities. He, he was a patron and president of several like the London playing fields, um, and he got Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner to come across to Britain to go to a gala to raise money for um, his charity. And uh, Frank Sinatra donated the proceeds of one of his songs um, to the London playing fields and also sent uh, equipment from America. And this was just after the war when things were scarce in this country, so he sent a lot of playing stuff for children to use in the inner-city sort of playgrounds Thanks to Philip. Now, I think one of my favourite, like one of my favourite names of the chapters, because obviously the book is broken down into 70 chapters on like different areas, but I, I really enjoyed Techno Queen, which was great and which kind of talks oh, about yeah. the, the move over to invert, virtual engagements. So why do you think this has been so important that the Queen has really embraced the joys that we've all faced of Zoom and FaceTime and everything like that in the past uh, kind of 24 months? Well, it's it's been a wonderful way for her to keep in touch. I mean, obviously, the um, we've all done it in different ways, and um, somebody at the palace must have realised that um, it's a good way of, of keeping the Queen uh, in the loop, shall we say. And virtual engagements have been a godsend. And one of the terrific things is for us is that we can actually see her talking to um, the various ambassadors and charities um, that they filmed, you know, so we, we um, normally these things are private. We never see what happens. Um, they did start to photograph them a few years ago, so we did see her uh, meeting an ambassador, but 
only a photograph and then now some of them have been filmed and released and she is a natural um some people freeze in front of the camera but obviously she's used to it um and there was a very funny one i don't know whether you saw it when she was with princess anne uh, they were both part of some uh, charity i can't remember which one but uh, anne was sort of guiding a mother on how to use zoom and saying well look you'll see six or seven faces along the top you should see those and and then she said, you don't need to see me. That's Princess Anne because you know what I look like. Oh, um, yes, I do remember that. That was quite early on. <laughs> yeah, no, that was funny. great. And one of those completely in such a weird time, one of those really relatable moments. What will be quite useful, use, I think what will be quite useful is the fact that, you know, the Queen's got a mobility issues. She's not as active as she used to be. And so Zoom and uh, that kind of thing is a way of keeping in touch. But also I noticed quite recently is that um, a company called Halcyon Days that makes um, you know, celebratory pottery and, and um, ornaments and so on, actually came to the palace and showed her their wares. And I think somebody set up a little stall and painted various pieces of, of, of china and porcelain. And the Queen was able to see it. And it suddenly struck me that one of the great things about having a vast palace at your um, disposal or Windsor Castle is that the charities could come to her. So in the next few years, if she um, is frailer than she was, which she is, um, say if there was a school that was celebrating an anniversary like 50 years, and normally the Queen would go to the school, it would be possible to send a delegation to see her and to show them the sort of things they do, whether it's like a, at a computer or an art class, actually do it in the castle, you know. Um, they used to do this in the 60s because um, when the Queen used to go Christmas shopping, they used to leave Harrods open for an hour extra so she could go along after the shop closed and do her Christmas shopping. Eventually, with security, that was a nightmare. So what Harrods used to do, and this is in the days when she shopped at Harrods, she doesn't now, but um, they used to bring their wares to the palace and set up shop in the um, various state rooms so the Queen could go from room to room, choosing her Christmas presents, you know. So uh, that's a, a, a modern way they could use that um, sort of thing of people coming to her for her to actually uh, interact with um, various organisations rather than having to go to them if you see what I mean. That sounds lovely I'd, I'd quite like someone to do that for me and not have to tackle Oxford Street at Christmas because that's never never a fun day out is it that'd be lovely yeah. if I, could, I say that wouldn't it? it would be a problem it would be a problem if she visited a nuclear factory but apart from that yeah you know, nuclear <laughs> Very true. Now, just really quickly, because I'm conscious of the time and how much of the day I've taken up with yours, but one of the other things you focus on is uh, the two, kind of the two, as many people say, most challenging years of her reign so far, being 1992 Mm. and uh, 2021. Obviously, these are, uh, stresses, scandals, upsets, heartbreak, and many people have started comparing, you know, that th- that famous or infamous 1992 to the more recent ones. Do you think it's fair to make that comparison as someone that's been so, you know, aware of everything that's going on? Yes, I th- think so. I mean, it. It. I don't think the 2021 was as bad as. 1992. I mean, 1992 was just terrible. I mean, one thing came after another. I mean, it started with the um, um, uh, Andrew and um, um, 
uh, Fergie announcing they were to separate in March, and then we had the uh, the book, um, um, uh, the Andrew Morton book on, on Diana and so on, and then we had um, the tapes that the newspapers have been hanging on to for, I think, a few years, because each newspaper, I was fascinated with this, they, they have a bank of stories that they don't feel it's always appropriate to use, but they have these stories sitting there sometimes and uh, I think the uh, Squidgy Gate and Camilla Gate tapes have been knocking around for a while and um, one tabloid issued it for the Squidgy Gate and then the other retaliated because of the Camilla Gate because these were the years of, of the tabloid wars you know circulation wars and royalty sold um, and then of course there was the, um, the toe-sucking episode with Fergie and so on it just you wouldn't believe the headlines and they just kept coming oddly enough they didn't um, involved the Queen in the sense that she wasn't part of it, wasn't her scandal personally, but obviously they undermined the value of the royal family, which was greatly uh, you know, detrimental. And of course, the year ended with the fire at, uh, at Windsor Castle. Um, so uh, it's never, these things are never usually anything to do with the Queen, but she suffers because of them. But, uh, and of course, it carried on because we had the Panorama interview in 1995 and then the death of Diana in 1997. I think 1992 was just almost a prelude to later things, you know. So, um, but I think that, you know, it's 1990, 2021, of course, it's the, you know, the prime thing is the death of the Duke. And uh, um, it would have uh, badly affected her because it was, he was the last one of that generation. So mentioned the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret earlier, that, that generation instinctively knew where the Queen was coming from and her attitude to duty and self-sacrifice and working for queen and country all those things are very natural to the queen and her generation the wartime generation and so she not only lost a partner but she lost somebody who would instinctively know how um how everything worked from her point of view um the younger generation can try and understand it but they've never lived through it so uh, i think the death of the duke was um you know shocking to her in that respect that it, it marked the end of um not just 73 years of marriage, but um, of somebody who, uh, to use the modern phrase, had her back all through all through her uh, adult life. You know. And as you said, those, those three people, the Queen Mother, Princess Margaret and Prince Philip were the three people that, you know, she was she wasn't just the Queen. She was, a per, you know, someone that they spoke to. They, it's quite often said, isn't it, that Prince Philip was one of the few that actually spoke to her just as a as a woman rather than a queen. So to lose that, I think, would have been. Yeah. You know, a whole different side. Mm, there's a great story of Philip um, told to me by um, Lady Pamela Hicks, his cousin, Philip's cousin, that um, they were driving through, um, Queen and Philip were driving through Cowdery Park, where, um, and, uh, where uh, William played polo later on. But uh, Earl Mountbatten, her father, was in the back, and Philip was driving like mad around these little lanes on the estate. And every time he went around the corner, the Queen was going, <gasps> like that. And... Um, in the end, Philip lost his temper and said, for God's sake, shut up, otherwise I'll pull up and throw you out. And um, when they did eventually get to where they were going, Earl Mountbatten said to the Queen, why, why do you let him talk to you like that? And the Queen said, well, he would do, you know, he would throw me out. You know. And he was the one person <laughs> that uh, would tell her, for God's sake, shut up, and, and you don't know what you're talking about, and things like that. Actually, to be fair, never in public, never, you know, he, would, he, he, always, he always knew when to say it but uh, in private yes he would give her a good earful now and then and, uh, and she loved it because he's the only person that could do that 
So Ian, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a fantastic book. So that's The Queen, 70 Years in the Life of Elizabeth II. It's filled with so many really fascinating little stories and nuggets information. So thank you for joining me. It was lovely to catch up. And thank you so much to all our listeners for tuning in as always. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at Podsave. And until next time. Podsave the Queen! Podsave the Queen!